Can you hear it with your ears? Can you see it with your eyes? Can you feel it wiggling between your quivering thighs? That thing, that thing, that thing with James. Once every millennium, something will come along. When you feel it, you will know it, cause it's coming on strong. That thing, that thing, back, relax, deep breaths, no stress, let me come inside your mind, I promise you it won't take long, the change will happen soon, you will feel something so special growing deep within you, that thing, that thing, that thing with change. Hi, welcome to episode 17 of That Thing with James J. Asher II. That's me! Today's episode is sponsored by... Wait for it. My printer kind of jacked up, so I had to write down the, the copy. Okay. Today's episode is sponsored by... Secondhand Sensations of Buffalo, New York. Sex is expensive. There's no need for your sex accessories to be expensive, too. Most sex accessory companies mark their products up by as little as 500%. What a ripoff! Secondhand Sensations of Buffalo, New York wants to save you money and stress. From edible undergarments to studded double-headed dildos, from vibrating cock rings to laughing anal plugs, from dental dams to diaphragms to twist-headed condoms, Secondhand Sensations of Buffalo, New York has everything you'll need to get off cheap. All of their products have been refurbished and tested for quality by their expert team of science professionals. You won't find better quality refurbished lubricants, toys, suspension gear, and more anywhere else. Save your money for your partner or partners. Save with secondhand sensations of Buffalo, New York. It's true. I started using secondhand sensations of Buffalo, New York three years ago, and I haven't found better quality, refurbished products anywhere else. And the price, you just can't beat it. Most of their condoms don't have holes in them, and my partner and I have gotten a lot of joy out of their house brand Tickle Wand, made of 100% real, natural ostrich feathers from Da Nang. Call today and mention this podcast, or visit their website and use the promo code THING to get uh, free shipping off your first order. Uh, secondhand Sensations of Buffalo, New York. Prices and quality so low, you'll blow. Wow, how about that? Okay, I'm recording this, and as usual, I'm wondering if I hit record on the video for the viewers. Let me check. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. It's it's doing its thing. Okay, so today, got some good stuff for you. Oh, before I get into it, uh, I, I gotta tell you, uh, you can find me on social media, on Instagram, 
and Twitter. I have a Facebook page, but I don't really fuck with it. But you can find me on social media at James J. Asher. You can visit my website, jamesjasher.com. And if you wish to become a, um, a patron of the show, uh, you can donate to my Patreon account at patreon.com slash that thing with James. Um, it's a dedicated monthly uh, donation if you sign up, but you can pay as low as $1. Or if you have fuck you money or just really poor money management skills, you can pay like $3,000. I don't know. I, I put one of them where it was like the limit. I forget if it was $3,000 or $30,000. Either way, one of those two would definitely pay off my student loans. So if you want to be a patron, check out patreon.com slash that thing with James. You can help me out and I can continue to bring you more and better content. Hopefully one of these days, you know, I won't need a, maybe this could be like my day job, this and other shit. Hopefully, you know, whatever, whatever. I've talked about, I've talked about that shit enough on other, other uh, episodes. Now, um, I wrote an agenda for today. I wrote plans for how I want this episode to go, what I'm going to talk about, because I tend to ramble. See, I'm rambling right now because I'm going off of my, I'm, I'm, I'm not going off, I'm, I'm going off track here. I'm not sticking to my outline. So uh, let's see here. Okay. Prices and quality so low you'll blow. Secondhand sensations of Buffalo, New York refurbished adult products. Um, let's see here. So here's what's coming up for the show today. We've got Catch-22 was disappointing. Uh, the TV show, that is. Um, a Bear Dream. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about my own recurring dream that wasn't about bears. So uh, let's start with Catch-22 because I, I mean, the last episode was entitled Catch-22. Um, and I was really excited for the new Hulu show to come out of Catch-22. And I was excited because I, I enjoy the book. I think it's one of the best books ever written. And I enjoyed the movie that was made in 1970. I thought the movie was a wonderful adaptation of the book. It caught the tone. It caught the essence. It caught the humor, the absurdity, the madness, and the horror. Now, uh, the TV show, it doesn't quite catch it quite as well. I've only watched the first three episodes because I, I watched them yesterday because it came out this past Friday, yesterday for me now. I don't know when it is compared to where you are now listening to this. You could be years away. But anyway, it was yesterday to me at the time of this recording right here. The show came out on Hulu. It's a Hulu original. And I got three episodes in and I got pissed off and stopped watching it. I'm going to finish the season. I'm going to watch the whole season. But as of right now, as of three episodes in, I am disappointed. I And, you know, I don't know if the problem... Uh, well, surely, the problem's probably me. The problem is probably me and the show itself. Now, I, I can't say... You know, I can't speak objectively. No one can speak objectively, especially when it comes to uh, inter interpretation 
and analysis of art. However, you know, it, that's all subjective. So this is all of this is entirely subjective. And I'm going to go off on a, some related topics uh, that are not directly uh, critical of Catch-22, but I will use the new Catch-22 TV show as an example for the kind of thing that I, I was kind of trying to talk about in the last episode about how movies... I felt like so many movies in the 70s were willing to be subversive. Subversive in the way that, you know, they're pretty heady movies, pretty intellectual movies, I would suppose. Even if it's, you know, a pretty grime movie, there's a lot to think about. And uh, the production quality, the performances, uh, the writing, the message behind what's going on, the subtext, um, all that stuff you know, it's pretty unabashedly, what's the word I'm looking for? Uncompromisingly artistic art. And I feel like you get that every now and then these days, but per capita, it's nowhere near what it was in the 70s, at least from what I've seen, the movies I've seen. Maybe I've just seen the select good ones, because I mean, there's a shit ton of really bad movies from the 70s. But there's... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's not as many that great movies or shows. That's not to belittle uh, the great movies and television shows and web series that do exist now because there's some fucking great ones. Breaking Bad, for example. Great series, fantastic writing, and you were there. You were there and you were empathizing with the hero as he made his descent into a villain. Unlike a certain fantasy series called Game of Thrones that a lot of people are unhappy with because they're kind of rushing that descent into um, villain, into evil uh, from some of the characters. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. There's like a fucking enough people talking about Game of Thrones right now. So, okay, let's see. I got some notes here. Catch-22 was disappointing. Uh, did the opposite of subversion. Hard bodies. Okay, hard bodies. So this is another thing I was talking about in the last episode with how movies from the 70s often, you know, so many of them. And just a lot of older movies. It's definitely gotten more over time, more about beautiful looking people. Um, you know, a lot of the movies from the 40s and 50s and stuff, there's just some like fucked up looking people, you know? There weren't that many hot people, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know why that would be. Probably medicine, nutrition, um, cosmetics, lotion, skin lotion, whatever. Um, yeah, so one of the things, one of the things that really stuck out to me in the first episode of the Catch-22 streaming series was there was a shower scene where like this squad of guys... They're all taking a shower and they're all just like perfect chiseled hard body dudes. You know, I don't think a single one of them weighs under like 160 in mass, just pure muscle mass, baby. And it kind of pissed me off. One, dudes didn't look like that back then. I mean, that's not to say there weren't muscly dudes, but there were different types of workouts 
There's different workout machines, different types of workouts. So the bodies were sculpted in a different way. There was different, again, nutrition uh, and, and medicine, different health knowledge back then. So there weren't really that many super muscly people. I'm kind of on the thin side for these days, but, you know, back, you know, what, 60 years ago, plus however long it was the 40s. I don't fucking, I don't want to do math right now. Back then, back in the day, you know, it was not uncommon for a guy to be more thin like me. Maybe not so muscle mass, not so beefcake, baby. Um, and so that was just kind of a red flag to me of like, the show is, okay, this is going to lean into the average conventional Hollywood presentation. Because right now, they're not showing any skinny, ugly, hair-thinning, zitty, um, you know, dudes with back hair on them in the shower. They're not showing real guys. Not to say that the guys in the shower weren't real people. They are beautiful beings as well. We all deserve to be treated um, well. We all deserve to be taken care of and have our basic needs met. However, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Hollywood really wants you to, you know, mainstream, average, fucking golden veneer, you know, they would rather give you sub. They would rather not give you substance. They'd rather give you sizzle rather than substance. What I mean is, if something looks good, but maybe there's no deeper meaning to it, it's just sort of a superficial thing to get you off. That's what you know. Average Hollywood productions would give you because that shit sells. Sex sells. Beautiful bodies sell. Good-looking people sell. And I feel like that's just part of like a massive thing where a lot of entertainment and beyond stuff, just content stuff, it just dumbs it, dumbs it down. It assumes, it's cynical, it assumes that people are dumber than they actually are. And so maybe dumb the message down. Maybe dumb the dialogue down some. Because someone might come in, like an executive might come in and say, oh, people aren't going to get this. Because maybe that executive doesn't fucking get what they're talking about in a really snappy, good, fucking meaty, flavorful back and forth, flavorful dialogue. Peppered, spicy, mm, spicy dialogue. Maybe a certain executive doesn't quite get it. So then they assume... Well, you know, the average person's just, you know, they're not that smart. They're not going to get this. It's too smart. And of course, Mr. Suit Executive, he's not going to admit that he doesn't understand it. He's just going to pretend like he does and say, oh, you know, people, you know, they, they won't get this. You got to you gotta simplify it. It's dumb it down a little bit. You know, push those tits up, baby. Get, tighten those pants. Let's show that bulge. Yeah. Shave that back hair. Uh, put a fucking, eh. Yeah, that guy's got back hair. Get him out of here. I want someone lasered. I want an Adonis. I want an Adonis in the shower with Yosarian, who's also a fucking Adonis. The actor, he's a good actor. The guy playing Yosarian, the main character. Uh, he was uh, one of the dudes in that show, Girls. Um, 
I don't know his name, but he's playing Yossarian. I got no problem with that. But he's so fucking buff. Just so fucking buff. And I really cannot picture Yossarian from the book being quite that buff. Now, maybe, maybe I'm just salty. Maybe I'm just sweaty. And baby, I am sweaty because I've got the AC turned off so the sound isn't more fucked. Uh, But it is hot and humid in this apartment. And uh, so, yeah, maybe I'm sweaty and salty about show Yosarian and his fucking, you know, beefcake, beef sausage body. He's just like beefcake stacked man, muscle man. And I really, I'm having a hard time picturing the Yosarian from the books looking like that. I picture Yosarian more like just maybe kind of average, maybe. I picture him like me. Because I'm a fucking narcissist. To a certain extent. To a healthy extent. We all picture ourselves in roles that we really enjoy. You know, if you feel like you can really identify with a character from a book, you would maybe see yourself as that person. Maybe. Or maybe I'm more narcissistic than I know. I don't know. Um. Wow. <laughs> wow, that made me think. I hope I'm not a narcissist. I, I hope I'm not a, a malignant. I hope my narcissism is not malignant. I hope it's not, you know, bad. I hope it's just healthy. I try to stay healthy. I try to stay grounded. Whatever. On with the show. Hard bodies. So yeah. In the 70s movies, you know, fucking Scorsese, still today, he's not afraid to feature ugly people. They're not afraid to feature ugly people. And now they're, uh, at first, so in the first episode of, of Catch-22, you know, there was a lot of beefcakes in the shower, and I was like, oh, fucking come on, really? They're all hard body dudes, and they got no character. Uh... I hope you can't hear that. My downstairs neighbor's been running his fucking wood machines all day. It's been going on for hours. It's 7 p.m. right now, dude, on a Saturday. Give it a break. Give it a fucking break. I'm trying to record my podcast. I know you don't know that, but I don't want to have to go down there and tell you to maybe keep it down and then have to get into a fucking conversation because I want to record this thing. I don't want to have a fucking conversation, man. What was I saying? Yeah. Okay, um, did the opposite of subversion. In what way, though? Dude, I'm, let's see here. Let's see here. This is why it's fucking hard for me with, I, I even get confused with goddamn outlines. Okay, hard bodies, no humor or absurdism, turn into a melodrama. Okay, either stick to the source material or make something original. All right, uh, the office style uh, camera work is cheap and overused. Okay. Scorsese camera work is brilliant. Has character picture. It's like a voyeur. Okay. Melodramatic emoting is not acting. Just say the fucking line. Okay. Emotions are capricious. Go for goals. Um, piss corduroy pants Robin. Those are my notes. Let me try to make some fucking sense of it. All right. Okay. So I've talked about the hard body dudes. Um, and that was already a sign that they were going for, you know, your average kind of production. Another thing that's 
stuck out to me that I thought maybe they would get used to it. Again, I'm only three episodes into the show, but they're using the it's it's used so much today because it was it got really popular with that show uh the office um i saw the british i saw a few episodes of the british version years ago i don't remember it um but the american version i know i remember well and it's got that camera thing it's got the steady cam where it's almost like you're there and it kind of affects you I guess it first got really popularized with like found footage kind of shit like Blair Witch, but it was adopted into sitcom television world, as far as I know, uh, with The Office, the American version. Again, as far as I know. And basically, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, where it's got the camera moves around like it's like a handheld sort of thing. Almost like documentary, but not quite documentary because it's a little too clean. So it's almost like it's trying to emulate a person's uh, field of vision where the camera kind of moves around. It's never steady. It's never sit, set. And it never shows the, the space around you. It never shows the environment, the setting. And maybe... Maybe before they clip to another scene, maybe they'll show like the exterior of Dunder Mifflin paper building offices. Um, that'll be about the extent of the setting. And then once it gets to it, it's pretty like squared up on faces on whoever is going to be talking next. Talking head, talking head, talking head. And that's another thing is because in order to clip out all the surrounding, you have to get close enough. So it's kind of like the cameras from the bust up. Um, the the yeah the whatever the frame is from like the bust up you know man um blah 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 what was i gonna say so the camera kind of moves around it's never steady and it's kind of shaky and if it's showing a broader shot to get a few characters in it's still not going to go too broad and show the entire space and the characters living within that space. It's just focusing only on the characters, not the space. And I'm going to get to, I've got a little bit more to say about the space here in a second, but it doesn't really close in on the space. It's, it's the camera's always focused on what's going on with the characters. Uh, so it might broaden out, but if someone wants to have a reaction or something, the camera will kind of pretty quickly zoom in on the person's face so you can see their expression but even then the camera is not really steady it doesn't really set there's no real panning either not a lot of pans it's just kind of like zip around and then it'll kind of zoom in on a person's face and kind of wobble a little bit or maybe if there's some kind of action they'll shake the camera to i guess the goal is to give the viewer a sense of action um so one of the things is that's used a lot today in so many different mm, tv shows mostly tv shows you see it in stuff like oh oh what's the name of that show cloud nine or superstore superstore that show does it there's just so many shows that do that, and Catch-22 does it as well. Uh, it, it does get a little bit of the environment, but not in a way that Martin Scorsese captured environment. So 
If you've never seen a Martin Scorsese movie, I urge you to watch them. Goodfellas. Uh, fuck. If you really want to go hard, start with the... I, I haven't seen Mean Streets. I think that was his first one, technically. Um, but if you really want to get in it, jump right in and watch Taxi Driver. Oh, dude, it's so fucking gritty. And that, But then move on to Goodfellas. And Casino. And so many others uh the last temptation of christ silence Ooh, the the recent one silence about the the jesuit priests in japan oh such a good movie um but one of the things that scorsese does is that with the camera he uses the camera as if it were kind of like another person like an, another character in the scene. And he also uses the, the environment, the space that the characters are in, uses the, the environment also as a character. He is not afraid of backing up and showing a lot of space around whatever character he's focusing on. So a good example is from Taxi Driver. The main character, uh, Travis Bickle, he's talking, well, he's leaving a, well, no, I think he's actually having a phone conversation with a, a woman who is his romantic interest. However, he just took her on a really weird, really bad date to a movie, to an adult movie at a porno theater in Times Square because it was New York in the 70s. And she, uh, he, he basically disgusted her completely. The guy's nuts, Travis Bickle. He's, oh, he's totally nuts. And I'm not giving anything away. But there's this scene where Travis Bickle, after, after the date, and after she just refuses to talk to him anymore, he goes to a payphone after work. And the payphone... Actually, I don't think it's a payphone. It's a phone because he's a taxi driver. So he's at the, you know, taxi headquarters, whatever the place is called. The dock, the shipping yard, the cab yard. Well, he's there and he goes through the main office and it's sort of like in a hallway. One goes um, horizontally to the camera, left and right. And the other one goes vertically up and down um, with perspective of the, the frame the camera frame, the picture frame. Um, so what happens is Travis has a phone conversation and it goes poorly. He calls her back and she finally answers after how many calls she finally answers. And he just cannot understand what he did to upset the woman. Um, but he understands that the woman is upset. He has a hard time processing what exactly he did to make her upset but he understands the concept that she's upset and he doesn't want her to be upset so he calls and he tries to make amends but he has a hard time kind of processing things especially really emotional nuanced emotional things um and so the phone conversation it goes downhill and it gets really pitiful it gets really pitiful and uncomfortable now, I've seen uh, some making of clips from the movie, and this scene is one that Martin Scorsese likes to talk about, and it fits with what I'm 
trying to get at with the camera work that he does and how it affects the viewer and what it means. He said that in that scene, you know, you're backed up. It starts off, um, it shows Travis Bickle, the main character, on the phone. It's kind of up close and he's leaning up on the telephone and he's calling her and he's talking to her. And as the conversation goes on, it just kind of gets worse and worse, just more and more uncomfortable in how pitiful it is. And as that happens, slowly the camera backs up. It pans out. So Travis becomes slowly smaller within the space and the space becomes larger. And you're seeing where you are. Oh, you're in a hallway and an adjacent hallway. And so it backs up and it shows him in the space and he's just this little guy in this big, big space. And as the conversation reaches its climax of like, oh, fucking, oh, dude, oh my God, you need to, you need to take a shower and I need to take a shower. It's ultimate pity. It's ultimate feeling. The camera pans away from him. It just turns and looks down the other hall and it completely cuts Travis out of the picture. So while you're doing, the scene's still going on. You can still hear him talking on the phone and struggling and failing with his love interest. But all you're looking at is an empty hallway. And Scorsese said that he did that intentionally. And the reason he did that was to show it was kind of uh, he approaches the camera like it's a character. Now the camera, this this additional character that you don't really see, but you see through the camera, he was watching Travis talk and try to save himself, but he failed. And he failed so hard that it was just kind of embarrassing to even watch it happen. It's so embarrassing to even be there. Say like you go out to something, you go out to dinner with your your mom or something and and you and your mom have a hard time getting along anyway, and say your mom gets belligerently drunk and starts making a fucking fool of herself. You feel like, oh my God, I don't even want to be here. That's never happened to me. I'm just using that as an example of a situation in which you'd be like, oh God, get me out of here, please. Well, that's kind of what the camera's doing in that scene. It's moving away. It doesn't even want to look at Travis. Because he's just so fucking pitiful. It's hard to even look at. He does that a lot. Um, and, in, and in that way, he also shows a lot of the environment. The environment is the special, sometimes unnoticed character in a scene. And I'll talk more about that in just a second. I need to drink some water. I'm back. I literally just recorded this part. I was like five minutes in and then my neighbor started hammering and hammering and hammering right below me. So I'm having to re-record this now. So let me try to recreate what I was talking about. I was just talking about the camera and how the camera works and how the camera has a certain personality. It has a perspective. It has a point of view and it has a a personality. The really good directors and camera workers, uh, photographers, know how to make the camera 
have a certain intelligence, have a certain sentience. Another thing a lot of really good filmmakers do is they get a lot of wide shots and they stay in a lot of... They, they, their camera work is simple. There's not a lot of willy-nilly wiggling around or just zooming in all of a sudden on something that maybe isn't that impactful. Um, as the the office camera kind of tends to do. It's just sort of meandering. It's not steady, which it's a certain aesthetic that I feel is entirely, entirely, entirely overused in so many different uh, television shows today. It's mostly television shows that I've noticed that do it. It's so overused. Ew. Uh, an Emily hair. It's about three feet long. And I just found it on my leg. I find those hairs everywhere. What really good filmmakers do is they keep it simple. They keep the camera movements simple. Just stick it down and pan when you need to. Uh, the only reason you should make any kind of movement with the camera is to narrate. It's to narrate. The office camera movement, it's not really narrating. There's no real reason behind the camera movement, just kind of like uh, ambling around, breathing around. There's no real reason for it other than just aesthetic. It's just aesthetic. There's no other message to communicate there. What really good directors do is they use the camera movements very... What's the word? Oh, what's the word? They have a damn good reason to move the camera at all. Just stick it down, get the space, move in when you need to move in, pan when you need to pan away. But all in all, at the end of the day, use the camera to narrate, to communicate, to direct the action. Have a reason for moving the camera. Otherwise, just leave it the fuck alone. And also, don't just cut face, 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 face. That's thing. That's a thing that television shows and movies do so much, so much. It's just close up, face, and then another face, another talking head, and another talking head. And then it shows, oh, here's the setting. And then it zooms in so you see who's talking, these two people, you see the whole bodies, and they're having a conversation. So then you get in closer on the conversation and it's just talking head, talking head, talking head, talking head, showing each person's face, maybe their reactions. It gets boring. It's repetitive and boring. And it it never stops. It just goes that way throughout, you know, forever. Really good camera work doesn't just do that. And if you watch a lot of older movies, and the reason is a lot of it's technological, because, you know, back before steady cams were a thing, before something you could just pick up, cameras were really fucking heavy. And maybe you could only afford one. So... And you, maybe you can only afford so much film. So you'll have a lot more broad shots. And you'll show both characters in the scene talking to each other. And then maybe if you want to kind of go around and move in on someone, if they're communicating a really important message, you can do that. But for a large part, Catch-22, it doesn't do that. And uh, it doesn't really... It's not subversive. It's not subversive by being really good 
<laughs> I think that's what I'm trying to say. I was disappointed. They took one of the funniest comedies I've ever read, and I do consider Catch-22 a comedy. It's a very dark comedy, but it's a comedy for sure. They took one of the best comedies ever written, uh, one of the best satires. It's a, it's a comedy satire. It's comedic, it's horrific, it's absurd, but at the end of the day, it's a satire with a certain type of aesthetic. And the TV show just completely threw that out the window. They somehow took the funny out of it. They took the funny out of a comedy, and they took the absurdity out of an absurd, absurdist piece. They're trying to go for something really kind of naturalistic, just kind of blah, kind of humdrum, kind of based in our reality. You know, this is our reality. And maybe there's some kind of quirky exchanges between a couple characters. And they do have a few characters who aren't these Mr. Perfect, Adonis, chiseled hard bodies, uh, kind of skinny looking dudes. There are some characters, some good characters, like the guy who's playing major, 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 major. He, I think he's doing a fantastic job. He's great. He's a character. He's got a certain vibe to him. And there's a maybe a couple other characters in the show, but for the rest of it, it's just really average kind of acting. It's just average, which disappoint me, disappoints me because I was expecting so much from it. <laughs> That's what I get for having high expectations. Um, yeah, the acting, they're going for just like your average naturalistic thing, whereas the book is definitely not that. The book definitely has a certain kind of aesthetic to it. It has a certain kind of vibe. It has a certain kind of cadence and rhythm. It has a certain kind of skew, a certain distortion. It's a distorted reality, what's presented to you in the book. And I feel like the movie from 1970 caught that and translated it very well. It's very much... It's stylized. It has a certain style to it. Um, you know, like Pulp Fiction has a certain style to it. The acting. They'll deliver a line and it's said like in a certain way. It's, I, I'm not really sure how else to describe it without just showing clips. Um, I don't have the words available to me right now to really describe, put words to vibe, to put words to something that you just kind of feel. But TV show Catch-22, they're going for the average kind of uh, the office camera and then the performances, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of the performances are just kind of melodramatic. It's very melodramatic and it gets fucking boring. Uh, they don't go to these extremes. You know, it's very it's grounded in reality, real realistic kind of that's that's what a lot of the performances are and i don't know where that fault lies if it's with the director the producers the performers whatever i'm sure the performers could do whatever um but i'm sure that a lot of it comes down to the directors and the producers who get the ultimate say on like maybe you know try it this way and get the actor to go to some kind of extreme or deliver the line a little off a little fucking weird you know kind of stylized a certain way not necessarily fake 
not necessarily disingenuous, but just it's got a certain vibe to it. You know, the movements, you know, it's just highly stylized kind of a presentation. They don't have that in the show, really. They got rid of that and said, you know, maybe just uh, maybe play it more sad. <laughs> I'm sure maybe the, the directors are saying shit like that. You know, be more sad instead of telling the actor a good note like maybe try to go for this. Maybe try to get your goal this way. Um, am I speaking clearly enough? God, it's hot in here. I don't know if I'm making any sense, man. Um, and then the the weird exchanges, the weird dialogues, uh, they're like, they took the funny out of it somehow. Like, how do you fuck it up? Like, it's like taking fucking Laurel and Hardy and turning it into, I don't know, Big Bang Theory. It's like taking the Three Stooges. The Three Stooges have a certain fucking style to it. And taking that style out and making it just the performances just kind of more realistic, quote-unquote realistic. Just taking all the style out of fucking Looney Tunes or something. Like, how do you do that? It's perfect the way it is. And, I, and I'm having a hard time seeing how they managed to take the style and the humor and the absurdity and just water it all down because it's right there in the book and also they one of the ways that they've kind of dumbed it down watered it down is by just you know turning it into your average hollywood tv show presentation giving characters names that don't have names cutting out vital parts of scenes mixing up different scenes i'm not i I have no problem with mixing up different scenes because it's a it's a reimagination say it's an adaptation you can take creative license with it. However, when it fucks with the vibe, when it fucks with the style and makes it not, you know, just makes it boring, why would you do that? Let's see, what time am I at here? Am I about to... Oh, no, no, no. I'm only 11 minutes in. We're on this thing. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, dude, they watered it down. I hope this isn't boring. Again... Like hours ago, I, before I worked out today, like hours ago, I was running all this through in my head and it was just like fucking on point and succinct and on task. And then now uh, I've got the AC off and it's hot and I'm recording and I feel like I'm struggling a bit more. I hope I'm communicating okay. Uh, yeah. So it turned it, they, they turned the show into a melodrama. They turned a very dark absurdist satire into a melodrama war movie that kind of says you know wouldn't this be absurd like wouldn't this be absurd if they did this but then they just totally play it down they play it all down and that sucks and playing it all down isn't necessarily good melodramatic is not necessarily good there's a lot of the performances the guys just don't go far enough one you can do a lot more. You can have fun with it. That's what I'm trying to say with the acting. You can have fun with it. But the actors, a lot of them, they aren't, they aren't having fun with it. Even the main character, Yostarian. You should have fun with it, dude. Whatever your name is, have fun with it. And maybe you did try to have fun with it. And if you did, bully for you, bro. But if, if you did, then someone along the line director producer editor somebody 
took it down. They took the fun out of it. It's supposed to be fun, even though it's dark, dark material, dark subject matter. It should be fun because that's the way the book is. And that's the part of the message. You make it fun so you can get these really hard messages in there, these hard to deal with messages. People learn more. They're more willing to accept when they're engaged and they're engaged when they're entertained and having fun. You know, they took the fun out of Catch-22. That's the fucking word I was looking for, man. Uh, yeah, just have fun with it. And they don't have fun with it. And they just turned it into every other fucking TV show and made the characters not have fun. I Like, what about a fucking drama? And they turned it into a drama, which pisses me off. What about a drama necessitates boring anyway? There's so many dramas out there where it's just fucking boring. It's meaningful look after meaningful look after brooding after brooding and then more meaningful looks and then more brooding and then maybe an extreme emotion with a quavering voice and cracking and I told you not to fucking sleep with her. You whore. You fucking slut. I told you not to do it. That's what I mean when it's melodramatic. It's soap opera acting. It's emoting. That's not acting, dude. That's just emoting. And yeah, I say, sure, maybe it is acting because they're performing an action, but it's a certain style of acting that I don't dig, baby. I don't like it. It's fucking boring. I don't like it. It doesn't keep me interested. What does keep me interested is, uh, you know, you can go for naturalistic Naturalistic acting doesn't mean it's just fucking dumbed down or, or emotive or anything. A lot of times, one of the things, okay, okay, acting lesson here. Uh, I like to watch and read a lot of uh, acting advice stuff. I'm, I'm a student of acting. I love it. I'm, I always will learn more about it. It's a constant journey. It's a quest for character. Um, read and watched some advice by... Robert De Niro, and his biggest note is don't do so much. That's that's his fucking note. That's De Niro's main fucking note for any actor, any age, any location, any time, is don't do too much. You naturally, when you're acting, your natural urge, anyone's natural urge, is to try to do more. Try to do more. Try to push it a little more. You know, oh, this is an emotional scene. Maybe I should try to push my emotions a little more. And that's when you end up with just kind of melodrama soap opera acting. Don't push it. Don't push it. Don't play the emotion. Don't try to affect the emotion. Don't even push for the emotion. Don't even think about the fucking emotion. You know? Because as soon as you do that, then you're acting, quote-unquote acting. Um, an audience can smell it, and they can smell that it stinks. He says, don't do too much. He says, all you have to do, the only thing you have to do is a lot less than you think you have to do. And that's his, that's his note, just don't do too much. And he said one of the things is like, say you've got a scene where you're mad or you're upset or you're on the verge of tears or something. What happens in real life? Does someone start going, and you fucking whore? 
And I, I just came in and I, I think I saw someone get hit by a taxi. The taxi driver, he, he didn't even stop. He just kept driving. He just drove off. It was horrible. There was so much blood. It's doing too much. And that's not real. People don't do that in real life, dude. In real life, people try to fucking push their emotions, you know, try to control their emotions, try to hide them a little bit. People try to stuff their emotions, try to stay in control, keep a level head. Um, and you got to understand that y you can break that, but you have to understand it first, just like grammar rules or music theory. You have to understand it before you can break it effectively, break it and break it well. Um, people don't do that. People try to keep their shit together. You know, more, it's more like, uh, instead of like, oh my God, it's more like, I just saw someone get run over by a taxi. There was so much blood. I've never seen anything. And the taxi driver didn't even stop. He kept driving. He hit the... The head exploded, I think. You know, that's not focusing so much. That's just spitting the words out. And that was one of the big notes that I got um, in one of my Meisner classes. And the last Meisner class I took from the teacher was just say the words. Because even when I thought, when I was like intending to try to not be emotive, uh, when I was trying not to act, I would end up acting. Because I'd get scared and think, oh, I'm not going to get this right. And that's the only reason. You just get scared and think, oh, I'm not going to do this right. Fuck that. Fuck all that. If you fuck it up, fuck it up. All you have to do is so much less than you think you have to do. All you have to do is, and this is what she would tell me, just say the words. Just say the line. Just spit it out. Don't try to say it anyway. Just say the line. For example, um, let's see here. Let me go back to this copy right here as an example. It's true. I'll read it like I did the first time. It's true. I started using secondhand sensations of Buffalo, New York three years ago, and I haven't found better quality refurbished products anywhere else. And the price just can't be beat. Most of their condoms don't have holes in them. See, that's, you can tell I'm reading there. Um, so instead, just say the line. Don't try to say it in any certain way. Uh, just, it's true. I started reading secondhand. Uh, I started using secondhand sensations of Buffalo, New York, three years ago, and I haven't found better quality refurbished products anywhere else. And the price just can't be beat. Most of their condoms don't have holes in them, and my partner and I have gotten a lot of joy out of their house brand tickle wand made of 100% real natural ostrich feathers from Da Nang. That's just saying the line. And that sounds so much less campy than the first way I read it, where I was trying to affect something. Um, so yeah, Catch-22 could use some better performances, or if the performances are fine, it could use some better directors and editors. Um, maybe it's great. Maybe I'm just jaded. But I have high expectations. And I demand good things because I, I demand excellence. God damn it. I demand excellence because 
if more people are trying to reach excellence instead of mediocrity, instead of playing it safe, instead of saying, oh, well, you know, we've got these hard bodies, you know, that stuff sells. Fuck that. Fuck that. Don't even think about that. All you need to think, all you need to think about is, is this authentic? Am I getting the message across? And is it being done well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My note here. Piss corduroy pants. Another acting tip. This one was by Robin Williams. I saw some interview with him and he was talking about um, class he took. I forget with whom. I, I feel like it was a woman that was teaching him. I, I can't think of her name, of course, because I can't remember who it was. But it was an acting class. And uh, he did a monologue that he thought he really nailed. He really thought he nailed it. Fucking... He hit those highs and those lows. Like, it was really emotional. And he was feeling it so much. And he finished his monologue. And then the teacher gave him a critique and said, uh, Robin, that was kind of like pissing yourself in corduroy pants. It might feel good to you, but we couldn't see any of it. That's acting. Just because you're feeling it doesn't mean it's coming across. All you need to do is a lot less than you think you do. All you need to do is just say the damn lines. Have an objective. Know why you want it. Know what you're going to do to get it. Um, and then try to get it. And then deal with the obstacles as they arise. So, yeah. Catch-22. I wanted you to be subversive, but instead, you came out status quo, bro. Not fun for me. Maybe it's fun for a lot of other people. Maybe it's great. Again, I might just be jaded, but I was expecting excellence from an excellent story. And, it, and the way they're mixing it up, it's not really helping it. I feel like all it's doing is just kind of dumbing it into a melodrama uh, soap opera show like every other fucking show is a soap opera even even if it's not necessarily soap opera fucking primetime dramas they're soap operas that's what they are they're just really high production soap operas and um, yeah I'm disappointed um, what was I gonna say you could have been subversive but your status quo not fun for me bro I Okay, next, I'm going to get on to my next point, but first, I need to drink some more water because it's really hot in here still. I'll be right back. I'm back. Let me get on to my final note here. I got an email from a dear friend of mine who's also a fan of the show. It's from my friend Josh. He says, hey, James, I hope you're doing well, buddy. I have a question slash topic for you. Do you or have you ever had any reoccurring dreams? I had one for years where I was being chased by a bear that was trying to kill me. They were typically in different locations with different people. They were always so lucid and vivid. It actually inspired a tattoo that I got. It's a bear tied in ropes. After the tattoo was finished, I've never had the dream again. Whoa, trippy dude. Uh, kind of fascinating how our subconscious mind works. 
I still never really pinpointed the exact meaning of my bear. Anxiety, fear, depression, hell, maybe all of the above. Anyway, maybe, uh, anyways, I thought maybe reoccurring dreams would make a cool topic to talk about. It does. Uh, and I, he sent me a picture of the tattoo. It's a cool tattoo. Yeah, it's a bear kind of going like, Rah! but it's got some ropes on it, kind of keeping it back. Um, hmm. Let me think here. Is it anger? Do you get, do you get angry? Are you kind of just sort of mad about certain things, like the way I am about how Hulu's TV adaptation of Catch-22 turned out? I kind of want to go, rah, but I got to use my internal ropes to keep me, um, you know, in check. Maybe it's anger. I asked Emily about it because she's pretty damn insightful. She gets a lot of... Um, animal imagery a lot of like native american imagery in her dreams and she's really good at interpreting the dreams emily said that bears kind of signify security um strength security protection and home having a den so maybe it's just all that together just kind of um home feeling secure feeling safe and and maybe if if you were being attacked by the bear in your dream maybe that meant you felt like you had fear of losing that stuff fear of losing that security uh losing a home losing safety um so that's kind of what emily thought and i i think that's that sounds good to me it sounds good to me what do you think maybe uh maybe it does mean that and since you got the tattoo you haven't had the dream anymore which is really interesting and i think it's really cool i think uh, maybe that was a fear that was really plaguing your subconscious your unconscious maybe that fear was plaguing you and maybe you still have that fear but maybe it's not quite as potent as it once was before you got the tattoo maybe by getting the tattoo you kind of i like to call it mortified the issue um that's what i like to do with writing um if I have a problem that is unresolved, something that's just really on my mind, I have to write it out. It will not get off my mind until I write it out into words. And that's just taking the thoughts out. Because when it's floating around in your head, anxieties, neuroses, fears, when it's just floating around in your head, it's just sort of formless. It's like a formless threat. It's a threat you can't really see, but you feel threatened. So by turning it into some kind of art, turning it, turning it into words or an image, a tattoo, painting, a sound, music, by doing that, you are 
extracting that feeling and putting form to it. You're defining that feeling. You're defining that thought. You're giving it a body so that you can look at it. You're taking it from out of your head. You're taking it out of your head and putting it into physical space, be it sound or something visual like a tattoo or words written, printed. Uh, it's visual and you can see it and you can look at it and you can examine it, this thing that might feel threatening to you. And if you can look at it, you can kind of figure out maybe what about it threatens you. And it just sort of exercises it. It takes it from the immaterial space of thought and puts it into material space. So yeah, I think it extracts that energy from you um, and puts it into physical space. And you can just understand it more. And through that abstract uh, extraction, you've kind of exercised that demon. And for me, it's um, when I write something out, I call it mortification. Uh, say, I write about a lot of things that happened in the past. I write about a lot of stuff that's in the future. But particularly with issues of the past or current anxieties that stem from past issues, to write about those past issues and maybe how they influence you currently, I call that mortification. You're putting those ghosts to sleep. Those are undead things. Those are, those are dead things. Those are ghosts haunting you. And by extracting them and putting, into, putting them into physical space and understanding them, you are burying them. So they can't haunt you anymore. Their place in, in the space of your head, and they don't really have a home anymore. There's no reason. You've uprooted them. You buried them. You put the skeletons where they needed to be. Took them out of the closet. Put them in the ground. Or burned them on a pyre like a badass motherfucking Viking boy. So I did. I used to have a couple recurring dreams. There was mostly one recurring dream. I had it a lot when I was like on the verge of becoming a teenager. And throughout my teens on into... I think maybe the last time I had it when I was was when I was eighteen or nineteen. Um, it, it, my dream was unsettling, so I started off. It was it was about a machine maybe conforming. It was maybe about status quo, and it was maybe about subverting status quo and not being fed to some kind of machine that eats humans because that's what happened. I I start off in a prison that looks like um, one of those, I don't know, what do you call them? Stall? Uh, clothing stall. You know, you go to Dillard's or something and you want to try on the clothes, so you go to the uh, clothing trying on room and get into one of those stalls and, you know, they've got those doors with, like, the fake wood slats on it that don't really open. And so I started off, I was in one of those stalls and I was trapped. That was a jail cell for me. And I look over, I get up on the bench and I look over into the next stall and it's the, it's the Wayans brothers. <laughs> but 
I was a kid, so uh, I was a fan of the Wayans Brothers. I still am. They're fucking great, the Wayans Brothers. But it was definitely relevant, you know, in Living Color. And then they had other shows on. They were still doing shit. Scream. Uh, I think that's Damon Wayans. There's so many Wayans Brothers. Um, But yeah, well, they were there. (laughs) It's just funny. But all right. So I'm in this jail cell slash clothing trying on stall. Fitting room, fitting stall. And then flash, scene change. I'm on an icy landscape. It's just a desert of ice. It's flat, just flat ice as far as the eye can see. Maybe on the horizon there's like icy mountains, glaciers on the horizon around us. I'm nude and I have skis attached to my feet, just strapped to my feet. And I have a metallic collar. I've got a metal collar, a thick metal collar around my neck. And there's a thick, heavy chain attached to the collar. Like I'm a dog. Like I'm a slave. Because I I know I am a slave to whatever's at the other end of this chain connected to my collar. And I look around and there's dozens of other people all of them nude like me wearing skis with thick metal collars around their necks attached to long thick metal chains and we're all being dragged nude frostbitten across this flat icy desert landscape we're being dragged by our chains like dogs like slaves on our on our sleds on our shoe sleds our skis and the, there's one thing holding all the chains, and it's a giant humanoid machine. I know this thing's a machine. It's huge, maybe, oh, 50 feet tall, maybe about 50 feet tall, and it's dragging dozens of us by our necks. And uh, that's when I know I'm a fucking slave to this machine, this humanoid machine. Flash, scene change. I'm at a barbecue somewhere in Oklahoma. I don't know why it's in Oklahoma, but I knew it was in Oklahoma. And what's weird is that I started having this dream before I lived in Oklahoma. I started having this dream when I was a kid in New Jersey. But I'd been to Oklahoma before to visit family. But Flash, I'm at the back of this, some nice like two-story house. It's painted white. Uh, There's a nice backyard and there's a barbecue. And all the people that I saw in the last scene with just nude being dragged through this frosty hell, all those same people, all of us slaves, we're free. We're all free in this beautiful, balmy summer backyard having the barbecue. You know, we've got the grill up. We're cooking hot dogs and hamburgers and there's music playing and everyone's got iced tea and lemonade and we're all just free and happy and we're, we're clothed. We're clothed. Um, and, uh, it's all good times and the sun's out. It's at maybe three o'clock, 3 PM. Sun's about there. 
but then I, I'm, I've got my back to the sun. I'm facing the other direction, talking to somebody, and then everything goes dark. Not like night, but a shadow is cast over us, like a big cloud covering the sun. But it's not a cloud. When I turn around, it is the giant humanoid machine standing there, looming over us. And it's uh, not looking very happy. It looks like it's going to attack us. So I run toward it like a hero because I guess it's my dream and that's just what happens in the dream. I run toward it and there's bushes like hedges along the sides of this backyard. It's kind of a longer backyard, not too long though. It's not crazy long, but it's not small. I'm running toward the machine and there's a rustle in the hedgerow beside me and out pops a, a Bowie knife and an M16 machine gun, assault an M16 assault rifle. I pick up the weapons. I, I pick up the assault rifle and I, I put the knife in my teeth because um, pirates are cool, you know? Uh, I pick up the assault rifle, I switch it to fully automatic, and I just unload an entire magazine of cartridges. I just unload on the machine, and then it, it staggers and falls to the ground. And it's sparking and stuff. I run up to it with that fucking knife between my teeth. I, I throw the gun down because I'm out of bullets. Throw the gun down. I run up to the machine that's that's kneeling and just like fell down on its side and then i jump up on top of it i take the knife and i just rip its neck open it's like fake neck skin and i expose all these wires it's kind of like veins but it's wires electric wires i expose the wires and i start just using my bare hands i just start ripping at the wires and there's fucking sparks and fucking sparks and shit flying everywhere arc light just tearing those fucking things out until the light goes out in its eyes and the thing's not moving anymore. It's not twitching. It's done. It's fucking dead. I get off of the giant humanoid machine. I walk back and everyone's just kind of in shock. But then they cheer because the machine's dead. And we're all cheering and oh wow, thank God we're alive. We conquered the machine. We're free. And then a similar shadow casts over the party again. I turn around. The machine's not dead. It's still very much alive. And it has a gigantic, uh, a gigantic fragmentation grenade in its gigantic hand. And it pulls the pin and it cocks its, cocks its arm back. And we all run into the house. We run into the house and close the back door and lock it, but there's a window there. And the machine lobs its grenade at the house. And just before it explodes, boom, I wake up. No explosion, but right before it hits, I wake up. And that's it. I had that same dream that same way for, hmm, about a decade, almost a decade. So, I'm not entirely sure. I've got some ideas about what I think it means, but I'm not entirely sure. I'm not going to say I know, but I have my suspicions. 
It's about freedom. That's one of my anxieties, is feeling trapped. I don't like to feel trapped. Uh, so, yeah. That's all I've got to say. Fun episode, huh? Again, you can find me on social media. I'm on mostly Instagram and Twitter. Find me at James J. Asher. You can visit my website, jamesjasher.com. And if you wish to help support the show, you can become a contributor at my Patreon, patreon.com slash that thing with James. You can, it's a monthly donation set up. You can donate as low as $1 a month. Um, and I'll have all these details in the description. Love you guys. Bye.